All right, let's read this as a church family. Kids, I know some of you know it from some memory verses. This is from Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Everybody. All right. Um, Stephen was referring to the sermon last week. Um, actually, not talking about idolatry today. That's like uh, the focus for February in our community group material and in a, a couple of my lessons. Because idolatry is really just worship gone awry. It is that uh, internal, innate. Uh, impulse for worship that all human beings have, whether they acknowledge the existence of God or not. They might not use the word worship. That sounds sort of ecclesial and religious. Uh, they might say something like, man, I'm stoked by that. You know, they sacrifice everything else to go get it, including their family, uh, all kinds of things, act like they're 12 years old when they're 40 to go get it, but they wouldn't call it worship. Uh, that's idolatry in practice, and we'll talk more about that later. I want to just really kind of, uh, kind of part B of the introduction of the theme this morning. Um, our, our 2020 theme, as you can see on the screen right now and on banners around the, the church building, is worship. And this is really kind of to just go back behind the theme for uh, last year, for 2019, uh, because this emphasis on worship lies underneath that theme of loving God because He first loved us. Because we're not limiting the word worship, uh, in, in, in our focus anyway, to its collective or corporate sense, what we're doing in here right now. That's certainly a part of it, and we will, we will talk about that a little bit uh, in 2020, Lord willing. But that's certainly uh, a, a more technical, narrow meaning of worship than it's used in the Bible. Um, so we're going to talk about the broad sense, the much more fundamental, elemental sense of basically adoration for God, adoration of God, devotion to God, um, loving God, being captivated by God. That's the basic idea behind all the different biblical words that are used for worship. You know, whether it's the, one of them is the, it refers to a physical kind of uh, posture that one's in, but it's because that, you know, genuflecting or bowing or falling on your face kind of posture uh, was representative. It manifested something in your heart, in your spirit, something you were feeling or believing, an, an adoration, a devotion, a commitment, an, an homage to God. So we're talking about that basic idea of loving God, and we do so because He first loved us. So when we read in 1 John 4, 19, our, emphasis, our theme emphasis for last year, that we love because He first loved us, the first part of that is we love God because He first loved us. Before we ever start talking about loving our neighbor, we have to remember the first great command, the first part of that two-part great command, that we love God with our whole being. And we do that mainly in response or ultimately, totally in response to what God did for us, ultimately at Calvary on the cross, when he took the form of a human being and died to pay the price for our sins and to reconcile us back to him, uh, whom we desperately need. And that, that 
elicits in us and, and fosters in us an overwhelming desire to be with that God, to be one with that God, to know Him, to be like Him, to, to just share in the blessings that He offers. And all of that together we're going to call worship, uh, this, this love for God. All right, so that's, that's what we're going to be talking about, this 24-7 all-consuming awe and adoration and affection for God, loving the God who first loved us. And, and the point we're going to be making this morning is that worship is truly central to everything we are. Everything we believe, everything we value, everything we do, whether it's in here or out the rest of our, you know, the 99% of the rest of the hours of our life, all of that is a function of who or what we worship. And you can see that here in Psalm 100. And today's lesson isn't an exposition of Psalm 100, it's just one example. Um, we've already read the psalm together, but I want you to notice here all the worship language. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. We've been doing that. Serve the Lord. Come into His presence with singing. Enter His gates with thanksgiving. Enter His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. These are all just synonymous imperatives, you know, commands to worship God. Show Him physically what you think of Him, how much you love Him, how much you adore Him. And second, and so the psalmist basically is calling the people to, to worship God and with all these different phrases. But notice the second thing about Psalm 100. Now I want you to notice how engaging in worship for God, answering this call to worship God, is connected to in very important things, very fundamental things. Look at verse 3. Sandwiched in the middle of all this worship language is this phrase, or this command. Know the Lord. Know Yahweh, that He is God. So, do you think of worshiping God as connected to your ability to know Him? Because it is. And it's not just a, if you worship Him and do your things like He wants, you'll come to know Him. That's not the point as much as worship is the appreciation and the grasping and the acknowledgement of who he is that's what worship is worship means you get him and the physical things we call worship just grow out of that they're manifestations of that but look what it says here in verse 3 all of that worship activity allows us to come to know the Lord that he's got and a second thing that we come to know and that's ourselves who are you what does it mean to be a human being it is he who made us and we are his we're His people. We're the sheep of His pasture. Worship conveys to us fundamental knowledge about who God is and who we are. So if, we don't, if we're not people who are um, given to worship and effective at worship and consumed by worship, we are missing some of the most central things about the meaning of the world and who we are as human beings. And so that's going to be the lesson this morning. We're going to talk about uh, the centrality of worship, how it really lies at the heart of everything we are and everything we do. Okay? So we'll begin to make the case this morning, and we'll revisit this throughout the year, that the single most fundamental thing, it's a big statement I'm fixing to make, but I really think it's, it, it holds water biblically. The single most, I don't know what the competitor would be. You, you can come up to me afterwards and say, I think this would be, that's fine, we can have a, it'd be a fruitful conversation. I'm not wedded to anything except scripture, hopefully, so... Uh, that'll, that'll be fine. Um, but I, I think, if I'm understanding things correctly, that the single most fundamental thing we can do 
to find fulfillment in life, to find meaning in this life, to find joy, to find peace, to find pleasure, I would even argue. To find hope in the midst of hardship. That's something we all have to deal with. And to be transformed by God. All of that and more. The single most fundamental thing we can do for all of that is to worship the God who created us and who created the cosmos. That's number one. That's the fountainhead of all those good things. That's where it flows from. That's the source, the source ultimately. Now, so worship is central. It lies at the heart of the meaning of, of ourselves and the meaning of the universe. It's, it's the heart of the story because it, it takes us back to the beginning. What does 1 John 4, 19 start with? We love because God first. God's the main character of the Bible, really. He's the one who initiates everything. You know, the, the world was formless and void, and he speaks. It's his word that forms it and fills it. And then he crowns the creation with us and then calls us to work with him as co-rulers or regents in, in that garden paradise. And, you know, that's the beginning of the story. So it all starts with God. And, and so worship is central to everything in Christianity. And yet Christians have often reduced the essence of serving God to other things. They've made other things besides worship the main thing. And one of the common, uh, I would say most common alternatives to keeping worship as the central thing, at least in, the, in religion, in the circles of religion, is to focus on behavior. Focus on the rules. Um, on things like uh, what theologians would call ethics. Uh, the circles I grew up in, we called obedience. Good Bible word. A lot of cases in the Bible where we're told to obey, no question about it. I one time heard a, a story told by an older preacher. He was talking uh, to a preacher um, <clears throat> who was about his age, two, two elderly preachers, uh, one a member of a church of Christ, one a member of a different uh, religious faith tradition. And they were asking, the question they were all considering was, what's the central most important thing in the Bible? And the, the fellow from the Church of Christ said it was obedience. That's the heart. It's all about obedience. The fellow from the, the other uh, uh, denomination said it was uh, grace. How, how do you really argue with either of them? I mean, they're both a zillion passages each, right? I mean, you're gonna, you can make a case for either. But you could also make the case, well, you can't pry those apart. Uh, but anyway, there's, there, I, I wonder if it's not worship. Because worship is to acknowledge who God is and what His attributes are, what His character is. That's why obedience makes any sense at all. That's why grace makes it. Everything else flows from this wellspring that is worship. So I, I, I don't really think that focusing on behavior is to start at the start. Um, and here's the first point I want to make, and it really is addressing this. Worship actually rules our behavior. If you really want to boil it down, worship is the thing that regulates your behavior. It determines how obedient we are, what our ethics look like. The way I behave or you behave Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock or Friday night, it's Friday, Friday at 7.30 p.m. or whatever, the way we spend our money, the way we allot our time, the way we interact with our, in our marriages, with our children, with friends, with coworkers, all the things flow from something 
You're not starting at the start if you just look at the way you function, the words you said, the way you use your hands, the places you went, what you looked at, what you refused to look at, how you speak, how you refuse to speak, what you value, what you refuse to value. All of that flows from somewhere. That's not the starting point. And that somewhere is worship. Worship rules our behavior. Now, it is certainly correct that true worship, biblically speaking, true worship will produce obedience. No question about it. And one of the warning signs that we're not really worshiping like we should is we're disobedient, we don't care. Or don't even care to look, to see whether we're following God's will. That is not a sign, that's not a good indicator that my worship is, 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 is cued in like it should be. Um, that being said, that's kind of the point. True worship does produce obedience. So there you go. Obedience is produced by worship. We've got to get the causation right. Obedience flows out of worship. So worship, having a heart that is already devoted to God, that is captured by God, that's where obedience comes from. At least consistent obedience. What did Jesus say when the, the Pharisees and scribes come up to him in Mark 7 and they're saying, your disciples, they're not worried about the traditions of the elders enough. They're not following the rules. The way our you know, revered elders through the ages have interpreted Torah and the prophets, the, the scriptures of their day, um, your disciples are doing different things. They're not washing ceremonially all these vessels before they eat. With, and Jesus says, you've got it all backwards. You're looking at what, you're looking at the activities, the actions, what comes out of a man, as he puts it. And in Mark 7, he says this, really where it all starts and where you need to look is below the surface to the heart. The heart. For from within, he says in Mark 7, 21, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. It begins in the heart. Let me give you one other example. This is uh, something that came to my mind several times when Nick was teaching the Exodus class last quarter. So if you look at the Ten Commandments, and I don't have them all on the screen here, but I got a lot of them. They don't, you can't put them on there without using a David Allgood font, which is nothing above 16. He's not here, so you can say amen. No, I'm going to tell David anyway. Um, I'm going to confess to him. And so I want you to notice, before the Ten Commandments start, I mean, what is the epitome of rules? If you said to anybody out on the street who's not even a believer, the Bible, rules, regulations, commandments, they're going to all go, Ten Commandments. If they're old enough, they're going to say Charlton Heston, the movie, you know, or, or the newer one, you know, Prince of Egypt or something. I don't remember how much of the commandments are in that, but anyway, you get these laws, thou shalt, thou shalt not. Thou, I think a lot of people think that's the Bible, basically, a bunch of thou shalt and thou shalt not. That's not where it starts. I mean, you're not, you're not being biblical if that's where you start. I mean, Frank, data-wise, you're just not being biblical. Where does it start? It's in Exodus 20. So we have the Decalogue. But before it even, a single command comes out of his mouth, we read this. God spoke all these words, Exodus 20, verse 1, saying, I am the Lord, your, I am Yahweh. The I am, being itself, existence itself. That's who you're dealing with here. And I'm your God. I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He's already brought them up out of the land of Egypt. They've already been freed. A whole lot of stuff has happened in the story before this. 
I think sometimes we have the idea, he gives them a bunch of laws, and because they obey them, and to the extent they obey, he'll, he'll liberate them from Egyptian bondage and give them the promises. That's not the order in the Bible. I mean, it's just not. You can want it to be, maybe it makes your system better, and you can, you know, everything fits, and it's, it's just not the, the case. He delivers them. They halfway don't even know who he is. Um, they still got paganism in their blood, which is evident with the golden calf and a lot of other instances. He delivers them out of his love for them and especially for their patriarch forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to whom he made promises that involve them. And God is faithful. Though we be faithless, the New Testament says, yet I remain faithful. And look what he says. I am the Lord your God. I want you to know who you're dealing with who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and it's only then that he gives them rules. He wants them to grasp who he is. That's worship. And notice this too. The first four commandments are all about worshiping God. You shouldn't have any other gods before me. Worship the right God. It's bad for you to worship something that's false. You'll hurt yourself. Uh, you, you, you shouldn't make a carved image. Don't try to put God in a little shape or a box where you can carry him around and get this idea that he's finite and you can control him. That's the essence of paganism. He's the wild and holy other. He'll do whatever he wants. Thank you very much. Don't, don't do that. That's, that's bad for you. You'll function differently. You'll act differently ethically if you think you're controlling God. Uh, and then he says, um, uh, you shall not take the norm of, of, of the name of your, the Lord your God in vain. That's about worship. The Sabbath day, in many ways, is about worship. In fact, the Sabbath involved not only like family time away from work and focusing on God, but there was a corporate worship element, if you read the rest of the Old Testament. So only then, after worship is, handed, is handled, and God is appreciated for who He is, do you move into the do's and don'ts. And here's where we want to start. This is where religion has typically started in, in, in thousands of years of history. Religion likes to talk about, well, let me tell you, here's the truth. You do this, you do that, you do this, you do that. Don't do this, don't do that. And that's how you determine who's in, who's out, who's right, who's wrong. And that's one of the most fundamentally different things about the, the biblical story is, is it doesn't really start with, it's about a relationship with God. Are there rules? Of course there are. We're like children. We need guidance. We'll be off in the ditch in five seconds. History has proven that. Our own lives have, my life's proven that. I'm guessing yours has. But it doesn't start there. It starts with a God who is incredible, who is mind-blowingly incredible, and who wants you to know him. Okay? A quote here from a book I've been reading lately called Awe by Paul David Tripp. Look what he says. The seedbed for a life. We're, obedience matters, right? So that's what he's talking about here. How do we get there? The seedbed for a life of obedience is awe. You think of it that way? What's going to make me obey better? I need to do better. New Year's resolutions. You need more awe. A-W-E, in case the tape can't tell what my Arkansas accent is saying. Ah, if you're from California, ah, or somewhere else. All. Mine's like A-W-W-W. So that's what I'm saying, A-W-E. The seedbed for a life of obedience is awe. When awe of something other than God replaces our awe of God, disobedience will replace obedience. It's because you're jazzed up about something more than God. Let's be real. That's why you go spend money on something that's, that doesn't look very biblical or you get all irritable when things aren't going right because something really valuable to you, inordinately valuable, is being threatened. 
That's why you're copping a tube about it. A little barometer, you know. <laughs> it's showing everybody what's really under there. Um, but what if God's the thing you can't lose? A life of submission to God's will, plan, commands, and purposes flows out of the worship of the one who has given those commands. Obedience is not the impersonal following of a set of arbitrary and abstract laws. Obedience is being in such awe of God that you are blown away by his wisdom, power, love, and grace, which makes you willing to do whatever he says is right and best. Obedience is deeply more than begrudging duty. It is a response of joyful willingness, ignited, ignited by, stimulated by, and continued by a heart that has been captured by God's glory, goodness, and grace. And I can just amen that heartily. All right, secondly, worship not only rules our behavior, worship reveals who we are. So we're not just talking about ethics now, we're talking about identity. Not just what we do, but who we are. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Augustine, the incredibly influential 5th century North African theologian, on one occasion said that if you really want to know a human being, know what they're about, um, what ultimately indicates who you are as a human being, as a man or a woman, is not what you know, what intellectual, what doctrines you can recite or affirm. It's not what you know. It's not even what you do. What ultimately indicates who you are is what you love. I've seen it translated different ways, but so he said something like this. In order to discover the character of people, we have only to observe what they love. What he's saying is that's, the, that's sort of the, the, the least common denominator, or, or that's not the best analogy here. But the, the thing, yeah, it is. All the different behaviors and, and affirmations of doctrines and thoughts and all the other things that we think are gauges, barometers of, of what makes a person a person, he says really those are just the outflowing of what they are smitten by. What has captured their heart. It's fundamentally about desire. And there's a lot of desire language in the Bible. And I don't want to get weird, but we're going to be talking about some of that in the year. I, well, I won't get any weirder than the Lord. <laughs> you know, unless I'm, if I'm mistreat, mistreating the scriptures, then you can reprimand me for that. But I'm, I'm saying, uh, the Bible uses the language of desire a lot in talking about a relationship with God. Like the, 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 the language of romance, of lovers, of pursuit, of courting, of wooing, over and over and over again. Why is that? Because at the end of the day, you and I, we're going to do what we want to do. We're going to do what we love. I can, you can come in here and I can make you feel guilty and I can make me feel guilty. I can hit us over the head with Bible verses and rules and the punishments and the threats. That'll serve you till about, you know, three or four days. Some of you maybe a month. It doesn't work for me. I'm not the month guy. What we have to do is get our heart changed, our desires changed. We have to be captivated by the one who is really the true object of what we're all looking for. And so, it's interesting to me that at the beginning and the end of the Gospels, and this was pointed out by you know, another book I've been reading, which I'm going to quote in a second, by J.K.A. Smith, who was a, a philosopher uh, from a Christian standpoint, that at the beginning and end of the Gospel of John, so in other words, the, the Gospel of John is, is bookended by Jesus calling people... Uh, well, he talks about Jesus. Uh, Jesus talks to people following him all the time. 
But in the, in the beginning and end of, of John, he asked disciples, basically, what are you looking for? What are you into? So, um, in John 138, remember John has his own disciples, John the Baptist, and he kind of transfers them to Jesus to the extent that they want to follow him. The next day, John 135, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Or did he say, what do you want? What do you desire? What are you after? I don't think he, I, person, I mean, we don't know. We don't know his inflection. I don't think he's just saying, what do you want? <laughs> you picture Jesus going, get out of here. What do you want? No, I think he's saying, he's asking him an existential question. What are you really seeking? What is it that you fundamentally desire? And then at the end of the gospel, after Peter has denied him and chosen his own safety, he thought at least, over allegiance to Jesus, when he denied him three times, Jesus asked him, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? And what I'm saying is the gospel of John is framed by these two questions about desire, about love. What do you desire? What do you want? Do you love me? That's what it comes down to. And it's because nothing says more about us than what we desire, what we want, what we love. And here's uh, the person, a quote from the book that, that sort of gave me that insight. Here's what J.K. Uh, James K. A. Smith says. Jesus doesn't encounter us and ask, basically, what do you know? How many doctrines can you recite? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? Not least most of the time. He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. Think about that. We are, when you boil it all down, we're, we're what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. So discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? The Beatitudes? It's more about hungering and thirsting than it is knowing and believing. Now, there's elements of both of that, of, of course. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God, and crave a world where God is all in all. Look at this last paragraph. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. His teaching doesn't just touch the calm, cool, collected space of reflection and contemplation. He is a teacher who invades the heated, passionate regions of the heart. And let me tell you something. Not one of us is sitting still. We're not static. I'm talking about our, 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 who we are, our being. We're not, we're not people who are just frozen in time. We are dynamic. We are, as creatures, we are all in process. We're all becoming something. Specifically, we're becoming what we worship. And so idols, which we're going to focus on more in, in February, though we'll talk about that throughout because it's the sort of photo-negative you know, the distortion of, of, of all of the, the, the things we're supposed to worship about God. 
Um, idols are literally false gods. We take a good thing and we try to make it a god thing. And, and things don't go well. We're either becoming like those idols we worship or we're becoming like God. So worship is, 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 is the direction in which we are going. That dynamism of our character, of our, of our makeup, is moving in a direction. So Psalm 115 is very interesting. We may highlight this one in February, maybe. It's talking about idolatry, as many psalms do, which was one of the, the main problems that God's people had. They, they really didn't get the idolatry out of their system until the captivity, uh, at least in the overt ways, and you could argue they never, you know, because they're human. Uh, like John Calvin said, we're, we're basically, the human heart is a factory of idols. We just produce them, you know, every day we're coming up with new ones. Um, anyway, he's rebuking idolatry here among the nations. Why should the nations say, where is your God? Where is Israel's God? And then he begins to show how, how, how mute and impotent and uh, powerless uh, you know, and, and useless the idols are. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And look at verse 8. This is a very ominous uh, promise, I guess you could say, or warning. Those who make them become like them. So do all those who trust in them. Think about all the things that are our idols. That thing that you devote yourself to that really has captured your heart, that, that, that in your nightmares would be the, the, the thing you would most fear losing, makes you most irritable, most hard to get along with when it's in jeopardy. That thing is shaping you. On the other hand, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that we all, all Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, this is present tense, it's a process, are being transformed. You and I are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, we are being shaped and transformed. It may take a while. There's ups and downs, back and forth. We're going to wonder sometimes. We're going to cry out and lament Psalms. Well, how long, Lord? I've been working on this for 35 years. Whatever. The fact that you're working on it and worried about it proves that His Spirit's in you. That's all that is. There's a whole other level when you've lost, you don't care. That's where that anxiety comes from. That's where the angst comes from. But we are being transformed from a limited degree of glory to the full glory of God. We are being shaped by what we worship. All right. So how do you change what you worship? How do you change what you want? What if we want the wrong things? I've prayed the prayer before. This is probably weird sounding neurotic. Maybe. I know I'm a little bit neurotic. We probably all are in our own ways. But anyway, east of Eden, we're, you know, we got, we're, we got issues. But I have prayed, Lord, I want to want you more. Like, he knows if I don't want him enough. What, I'm not hiding anything. We need to be real with God, like the psalmists are. And I have trouble with that. I want to present my best face. Even though it's me and him, I'm in my bed. It's me and God. There's nobody listening. This is all, you know, when you pray silently, you're not saying things out loud because you don't wake up your wife. Um, but you're praying. We've all done that. And, and it's like you still have this, this, this kind of need to like present, like be pretentious. 
be, look, come across as a little more like you got together. Like he doesn't know. Just say it. So sometimes in that spirit, when I'm feeling more authentic, I'll say, I want to want you more. I need to need you more. Like the problem is I want something else. That's just, let's be honest. It's more work to pursue you than it is this thing over here, which is just like natural because it's so awesome. That's how God ought to be. How do you change what you love? How do you change what captures your heart? First of all, I want to say, we're going to try to make this point fast, but I'm not going to read this whole text. Oh, sorry. So worship, third point, requires intentionality. What I'm saying here is it requires focus. The only way to change what we worship, what we love, is to focus on the one who is the most lovely, the thing that is the most majestic, splendid, exhilarating, pleasurable, all the good adjectives, and that's God. We've got to be intentional about it. It's not the default path. Idolatry is probably the default path for us. All fall short of the glory of God. All means all, right? So that, that's not good. Uh, this isn't something where we need to trust our instincts. We need to have our instincts refined by the teachings of Scripture and then go with it. It requires intentionality. So Romans 1, we're not going to read all this. It's that famous passage where Paul indicts paganism worldwide throughout history. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteous men who suppress the truth. Um, he says God you know, made all these things and there's no excuse because you can just through the created order know some basic things about God. Even the Gentiles, even the pagans who didn't have the Bible. So that's the point of this whole text. I'm not going to read it because I don't want, I think a lot of us are familiar with it, but um, I'll let you go read Romans 8, 1. Uh, read the whole chapter, really. Um, this is just a, a short excerpt. But um, I want to make this point. And that, that point is that worship is a choice. Whether we worship is not a choice. Just like Stephen said in his talk, we are wired for worship. What we worship is a choice. And I think that's clear here in the language used to describe the pagans who refused to have the true God of the Bible, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Judeo-Christian God, in their knowledge. They didn't, they didn't acknowledge Him to be, to be real, to be who He claimed to be. Look at what it says here in verse 21 of Romans 1. Although they knew God, in other words, by, by knowing here, He simply means that they, they could see the evidence of His existence and His power, His, his divinity and His, his you know, the exquisiteness of nature, the world He made. Although they knew that, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You ever known something but just didn't bother to give thanks about it or to honor it? I'm just too busy. Whatever. That's the picture. Secondly, it says down here in verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped, there's our word, and served, another worship word, the creature, the, the creature, the creation is what I was going to say, any, any part of the creation. He talks about a whole bunch of different parts of it there. You can worship rocks, birds, you know, uh, bits and bites. I mean, there's any part of it. Anything that is not the transcendent God, that is a made thing, so anything in the world. That's what that means. They worship something about that, some aspect of that, rather than the one who made it, the Creator. So, that's a choice. They chose to worship. They're not not worshiping. 
And there's no picture, there's no option in Romans 1 of somebody who said, I'm not, I'm not doing A or B, God. I'm doing C, which is none of the above. I'm just not going to be a worshiper. I don't need worship. That's not, a, that's not in the picture here. You either worship something in the creation or you worship the one behind the creation to whom the creation is pointing, of whom it is an echo or a shadow. It's a signpost pointing to the one that is the destination. And you're going to worship the destination or you're going to worship the signpost. You're not going to not worship. Not, not according to the Bible. So it's a choice. Brian Fickert says it this way. Every human is worshiping something. Whether God, money, sex, power, fame, or something else. The term worship in this context doesn't mean just singing hymns on Sunday morning. Rather, we worship whatever we love most. It's the magnet that has the greatest pull on our hearts. That's a great metaphor for what I'm trying to get across anyway. The magnet that has the greatest pull on your heart. What is that thing? That's what you functionally worship. Whatever we say in here, whatever we sing in here, functionally, on the ground, where decisions are made, where emotional reactions come from, where priorities are aligned, where relationship, what relationships you're shaped by. That's your functional God. And so he says, the question is not whether we worship, but what we worship. All right? And we should want to worship God. We should want to, because doing so is the best thing for us. The best thing for you or for me is to worship God. Think about this. The Creator is bad. And, and we're trying to get this across more and more as we go into the lessons and the community group material and Bible classes as we go through the year. But our Creator, our God, is vastly more lovely, more desirable, more majestic, more interesting, more exhilarating, truer, stronger, more loving, more caring, more loyal to you than anybody you know in anything you could ever pursue in this world. Why wouldn't we want to worship that God? So all the things around us that we so desire and that people end up worshiping are just echoes or signposts. Think about material security. We can, we can trash people for being caring, caring about material things. God put that in you. In fact, why is justice about giving people food when they don't have it? Just go, well, you don't need food. Why aren't you spiritual? That, have you ever thought about that? That's a kind of tension in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. There was no need among them in the church in Acts. Well, just go, we don't need any more. Need anymore. We got baptized. No, you still have a need. He made the body. It's God's idea. He's the one who feeds and gives us food and raiment and assures us he'll give us those things and all that. So that's not everything, but that's something. And everybody wants material security. It's wired into us. Think about this. We are promised that we as Christians will be heirs of the world, fellow heirs with Christ of a new world that's coming. The one who made the universe. I mean, there are galaxies we haven't discovered yet, right? And however high you go up, it's exceedingly complex and glorious. However low you go down with a microscope, you, you start seeing the same things. You know, rotations around atoms and subatomic particles look a lot like things. You can go way out or way in. <clears throat> and it's, it's mystifying. 
And the, the one who made all that is your father, if you're a Christian. You're an heir of all that. That's the language the Bible uses, not once, several times. Talk about security. Talk about having what you need. The guy who made gravity has <laughs> got your inheritance for you. That's not, not bad. What about romance and marriage? My, talk about a god, small g. Every romantic comedy has a sort of transcendent, you know, they don't do romantic comedies anymore, but when they did seven years ago, my wife laments this regularly, like, what happened to the genre? Um, and I'll go ahead and confess you and, and, and revoke my man card. A well-done romantic comedy, I, I actually like them. Problem is there are not many that are well done, uh, my opinion. The previews are great, and then, you know. Anyway, they always have this same plan. It's like the Western where the theme every time is just vengeance. The, the basic plot line of romantic comedy is in an increasingly godless world, you find your transcendent soulmate. That language is revealing. And it's almost like a romance becomes this replacement. But in a sense, it's a half-truth because God made romance and marriage as a signpost to our marriage with Christ, between Christ and the church. That's what Ephesians argues, that our marriages image forth the marriage between God and humanity. So we're, they're not half wrong. That's something, that's an instinct that's right. It's just a half-truth. Community, belonging. We all want community and belonging. A gang is just a church without God. It's, a, it's an elemental need we have. Well, guess what? In the new creation, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be there worshiping the same God. Beauty, you've never seen beauty like the God who made Yosemite. So, we've got to remind ourselves to keep our focus on God. He is the source of all goodness, beauty, and truth. And that's why so many of the Psalms call us to remember how desperately we need to make worshiping God a priority. So, Psalm 100, as we saw earlier, has some of this. And uh, Psalm 103, I'll give you this one as a closing example. Here, the psalmist in Psalm 103, probably my favorite psalm in the Bible, is, is reminding himself to worship. There's a lot of psalms where either the people are being called, hey, you need to remember, worship God. It's good for you. Here he's saying, hey, I need to worship. He's saying, self, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Then he starts going through all the reasons. <clears throat> Look at all the benefits. This God forgives your iniquity. He takes your sin away. He heals your diseases. Redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love, unfailing love and mercy. Satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Then he goes through all these other things. And at the end, this is the other end of the psalm, kind of the two bookends. Again, worship language. Bless the Lord. Now he's talking about who, who else does it. Oh, his angels, the mighty ones who do his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Talking about the heavenly hosts, you know, the pictures, the people, these figures you see in the book of Revelation. And then, bless the Lord, all his works, all nature, all the animals, the mountains, the stars, they're all crying out in worship to God in all places of his dominion, and then ends it back where he started. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Why don't I join in with what all creation and all of God's heavenly hosts already know? And that this God is matchless. He is what we're really longing for. And everything that we are and need to be goes back to whether we get that or not, and that's what the word worship means. So I don't know how you could start anywhere more fundamentally than worship. 
other than the word God. And then when you start, well, who is God? What is, then we're talking worship language. You see? That makes sense? Two people said yes. Okay, we, we got a whole year. So <laughs> either I put you to sleep or uh, that doesn't make much sense. All right, or I probably just didn't see you. Great. Glad you're here today. Um, we're going to close now and um, in just a second sing uh, uh, this song, Your Kingdom Until Then. Um, there we go. Glad you're here today, uh, especially visitors, as has already been said. If you have some need that we as a church can help you with, we would be happy to talk to you about that. Um, maybe there's somebody here who has not yet become a Christian, and we haven't talked much about this today, but in the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly, and then Paul and other disciples of Jesus who taught his way, taught the gospel, basically teach people that we have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel is, the good news is, that God has done what we, for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. He came and lived as a human being and died on the cross to pay the price for our sins. And so we don't present, if we've become a Christian, our own record of performance to God, which would condemn us. We, we get to present Christ's record because he's our advocate. He has paid the price for our sins. And God looks at us and he sees Jesus. He sees the blood of Jesus cleansing us. That's what baptism's for. That's why we have a baptistry. So if you believe that message and are willing to repent of your sins and confess Christ as your, your Lord and Savior, we can baptize you into Christ for remission of sins. Um, and uh, we would love to do that. Maybe you're not ready to do that. You want to study the Bible, ask some questions. Maybe I said something in my sermon that was weird or funky or didn't seem true. I'd love to hang out in coffee shop, uh, talk to you and study and learn. Um, and lots of other people here would as well. So if we can help you in any way, you can come down to one of these chairs here in the inner part of the, 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 the circle, and we will do our best to help you. Let's all stand and sing.